Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, it's Labor Day in the United States, and we thought we would put together a Labor Day special. Labor Day is uh, celebrated on the first Monday in September to honor and recognize the American labor movement and the works and contributions of laborers to the development and achievements of the U.S. So we're going to look at some of the stories from past episodes that celebrate people whose jobs were to do amazing things. And they accomplished great things in the in the process. But we're going to approach the uh, topic of labor in a few different ways. Yeah, we've got a story in there about um, a bizarre birth. See, labor. 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 Birth. Yeah, yeah. So it all ties together. Anyway, let's light this rocket. So I've got a, a cool story for you. I love a cool story. Today. Mm-hmm. Banjo has a story also. Yeah, or He's gas. Maybe, maybe he needs to stop at a convenience store. <laughs> but enough about me. Let's talk about you. Uh, let's talk about this. Let me ask you this question. Is it possible for a man who is barely over five feet tall and weighs less than 100 pounds to lift blocks of stone that in some cases weigh as much as nine tons apiece using nothing but hand tools, no machinery, just by himself. Is that possible? Yes. Well, the answer would be yes, but how did he do it? We don't know. Magnets. The guy's name was Edward Leedskelnen. He was from Latvia, and shortly after World War I, he moved to the United States. He had been shunned by his lover. Shunned. Shunned. Uh, his 16-year-old bride uh, stood him up the day before the wedding. Aww. And so he was heartbroken. He came to the U.S. How old was he? Um, I don't know. He was pretty young. He was a young dude. He moved to Florida. He was looking for land in Florida. Huge tracts of land. And ended up building what is now known as the Coral Castle. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 He built this thing by hand. 
The Coral Castle is notable to me because it looks so much like that spa in Madison, Maine, uh, Deja Vu. It's pink, and uh, I don't know if it's a thing anymore. Okay. But they had a great so, facial service. Yeah. So, yeah. So the Coral Castle uh-huh. reminds you of a business in a small town in Maine that no one's heard of yeah. uh, that may or may not still be in business. Correct. Okay. That's... <laughs> I love how your mind works. Um, so anyway, he he moved to uh, Florida. He came here from Latvia. This is shortly after World War One, as I was saying. He was walking down this back road during the Great Florida Land Rush mm-hmm. during this particular uh, time period. Sure. Where a real estate agent who was driving around looking at land saw him walking. Just a little guy. He said he thought he was a, a young boy. He was so young, so young looking, so small. Pulled over, gave him a ride. And uh, found out that the guy had tuberculosis. So the real estate agent and his wife said, hey, you know what? You can live with us and we'll nurture you back to uh, to health. He regained his health and he says he claims that he was able to heal himself using magnets. What? Yes. Magnets. Never went into any uh, any specifics about that. That's what he told people in later life. That, that he healed himself using magnets. That's insane. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. It was obviously the healing Floridian waters. <laughs> Maybe that was it. He's determined to build this castle for his uh, his fiancée, his former fiancée. You mean as, the one that stood him up? Yeah, his sweet 16. He thought if he moved to the United States and built this big castle that she would relocate and, and, and find him. And he just, it was kind of a mystical thing. He decided that's what he was going to do. And over 28 years of time... He built this thing using nothing but uh, tripods and rope and chains and hand tools. Nobody saw him how he built it because he would do it under the uh, cover of night. He would only build at night. That's so strange. And when people would come to see him, uh-huh. he would stop working. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, if he didn't, it would be impolite, I think. <laughs> yeah. Plus, he was doing some weird kind of levitation type stuff. Is what people were saying. Uh-huh. Is that he had rediscovered how the Egyptians assembled the uh, the, the granite blocks uh, in the pyramids. That it was a uh, it had to do with magnetics and wow, he's really into magnets and also the um, energy fields, the different types of ley lines. You've heard about that. How there are stronger electromagnetic fields within the Earth that run along certain parallels, certain right. lines, and it's the soft spots in those lines that uh, is where it's easier to travel between dimensions. Well, that's another theory we'll get into in a much later time. Okay, but uh, so allegedly the uh, those types of energy lines run through Florida and this particular part of Florida, which is right outside of Miami. So people would show up and he would just stop working. He was always very polite. Mm-hmm. He was a, a nice man. People loved this guy, but he was a little bit uh, a little bit odd. The rumor is that two young boys snuck in one night to watch him. And they said that they saw him moving blocks these big giant coral blocks moving them through the air like they were hydrogen balloons just pushing them into place with his fingers 
Well, then he should have been able to build it a lot friggin' faster than he did. He was a little man. I think those kids had been smashing on some mushrooms or you think, something. You think they were shrooming? Yeah. Back in the <clears throat> 20s? when uh, Was that a thing? Did kids shroom in the 20s? I'm sure they did. I know there was bathtub gin. I know that. So he uh, he gets the perimeter built. He gets a lot of the structures in place. He's cut stone after stone after stone. And by the way, these are just incredibly precise cuts. And how is he cutting them? Do we not know we that either? Know. We don't know. We don't know. He's just slicing through it like butter with his fingertips. Nobody knows okay. for sure. Okay. How there are some some theories, but nobody knows for sure. That's part of the mystery. Many believe that uh, he was practicing occult Masonic practices. Nosy neighbors said that they heard him repeating incantations over the stones. But these neighbors started to really tick him off because they were becoming too nosy. So he decided that he was going (laughs) to build the castle in a different location about 10 miles away. Did he start over? Nope. He took his castle with him, what he had built up to that point. He hired a guy with a truck. The guy came with the truck. He asked the guy to step around the corner. And then when he came back out, the block of of coral, of limestone, was placed on the back of his truck. No tools. He was the only guy there. It was only like a couple of minutes. And he did this over and over and over again until he moved his entire castle okay. 10 miles away. Okay, I, I was like, I was trying to figure out what you meant because you said he moved the whole castle, but yeah. then you talked about the one block. So I just wanted to understand that he moved block. He didn't like put right. the whole castle on the truck. Not at, not at once. That would be silly. Right. That would be unbelievable. Oh, it's a museum. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. The stones were so precisely cut and again, he did not have a diamond saw or anything like that. No right. no machinery. They were so precisely cut. Each stone was almost identical. And they fit together perfectly. Kind of like what you see like Machu Picchu. You know, you look at the stones and they're all just perfectly aligned. And, and you can't even put a, a piece of paper between the cracks on the stone. The pyramids are the same way. Right. This was uh, identical to that. And uh, he used no mortar. It was not fastened together. They're just sitting on top of each other, just using the weight, their own weight. The craftsmanship detail is so skillful, and the stones are connected in with such precision that no light passes through. You can't even put a, a blade of grass in there. Wow. I said that the stones were like nine tons. That was kind of the average. The eight-foot-tall vertical stones that make up the perimeter, on average, they were uh, 14 tons. And the largest stone that he moved was 27 tons. Wow. That's impressive with machinery. Well, they they did an experiment. I was watching an old episode of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Nice. And they hired a masonry company, somebody that actually cuts granite out of the ground, and they have specialized tools for this. Mm -hmm. And so they gave him the specifications of an average stone. Um, They cut it out of the same type of uh, coral slash limestone that uh, Ed used. And they were able, of course, to to get the stone cut, but lifting it out was a real problem. They were able to get it up out of the ground, Mm -hmm. but they only could could drag it with uh, this big crane that they had. Mm -hmm. So you can actually see it almost tipping over while they're trying to move this um, this 30 ton block. 
So they interviewed the guys who did it. They said, is it possible for one guy to do this on his own? And sure. they said, absolutely not. There's no way he could have done it on his own. But did he have a, like a dolly? Because you can move almost anything with a dolly. <laughs> he had uh, ropes and pulleys and chains. And he erected like this uh, log tripod kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But other than that, he was never seen using any kind of mechanical tools. They were all hand tools. He all worked by himself the whole time. And he was just a little dude. Did he have a job? Where did he get his money from? He was very thrifty. Okay. And he started charging for people to come in and, and look at his work. Oh, okay. Um, like, a, like a dime. He sure. would charge him a dime. And when he died, neighbors who were fiercely protective of this guy, he was beloved, they guarded his place until the police could come and, and do a thorough investigation. They found something like over $3,000 in $100 bills tucked in a little compartment in his uh, bedroom. Attached to that was what appeared to be some sort of a treasure map. Oh, but they could not. No one's been able to decipher it. They don't know what it, it doesn't make any sense. It looks like it's trying to point somebody in a certain direction. The term that I read that they used was it doesn't make sense in three dimensional space. Interesting. You're on a real treasure kick lately. I, it just happened. But yeah, I do have a metal detector and I did find a box of dildos once. <laughs> That's going to be your epitaph. Yep. I once found a box of dildos. <laughs> now, he also built a gate leading into the structure. And this is a nine-ton block of limestone. And it is balanced so precisely that you can open it with your finger. You just touch it, and it just oh, glides wow. around in a circle. That was quite a feat of engineering. When it broke in 1986, in order to remove it and repair it, it took six men, a 50-ton, 45-foot crane. Once the gate was removed, the engineers discovered how Leedskulnin had centered and balanced it. Uh, he had drilled a hole from top to bottom and inserted a metal shaft. The rock rested on, a, on an old truck bearing. Uh, it was uh, rusting out, and that resulted in what had caused the, uh, the gate to, uh, to fail. So this guy was pretty smart. He was pretty ingenious. He, he had an engineer's mind, for sure. Oh, yeah. See, now, I, I thought you were going to say Stargate. But that'd be really cool. <laughs> Maybe it is. Um, in 1951, he left a note on the gate. It just said, I'm going to the hospital. And he put on his one suit that he owned mm -hmm. and he got on a bus and went to the hospital. They said he was severely malnourished. And so under their care, he started to make a comeback. But then just unexpectedly, just as he looked like he was turning the corner, he died in the hospital. And that was the end. Did he not eat food? Like, what? did he just... Nobody really knows that much about him, other than he was just a really nice, friendly guy. He's always smiling and happy, but he's very secretive. He always worked at night. Mm -hmm. He never told anybody how he did things, and apparently was squirreling money away as well. Yeah, and not spending it on food. And not spending it on food. The uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, if you can, you know, master the art of rock balancing, you should reward yourself with a banana every now and again. <laughs> 
The Coral Castle remains a very popular uh, tourist attraction. Books, magazines, television shows speculate on, on how he was able to construct the structure and move the stones that, that, uh, that weighed so many tons. Claims that nobody has ever seen Leedsklinen, I can't say that name. Ed? Yeah, Ed, uh, at work, and that he uh, levitated uh, the stones have been repudiated. According to Wikipedia, Orville Irwin reportedly witnessed him quarrying stones and erect parts of the wall and illustrated the methods in a book he called Mr. Kant is Dead, a short documentary made in 1944, and it states in it that uh, if anyone ever questioned Ed about how he moved the blocks of coral, Ed would simply reply that he understood the laws of weight and leverage well. He also stated that he had discovered secrets of the pyramids, referring to the Great Pyramid of Giza. But this guy says mm-hmm. that uh, based on the equipment that he saw there at the time, mm-hmm. he was able to recreate Ed's feat of cutting precise blocks out of the bedrock and moving them by himself using these primitive tools. But nobody has seen him do that. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. There you go. Well, you said that one of the tools that he used was like a wood triangle thing. It's like a tripod, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's what he meant by the secrets of the pyramid. And he wasn't referring to the pyramids of Giza, but that shape that he was using to help move those things. And that was the secret. And that... Uh, Maybe. Or when he was referring to the pyramid, he was uh, sending out a secret message that he was actually part of the Illuminati. I'm making the pyramid sign with my hand. Mm-hmm. I, I know yeah. what you're getting at. Yeah, there. right. I, yeah. I don't know. Or Toblerone. That's that chocolate bar, right? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the little triangle. The little oh, little tiny pyramids. Yeah. So I want to go and check that out. Our yeah. road trip just got longer. Well, I just noticed that it, it's also a museum. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. That's pretty cool and beautifully landscaped. I have to say. Oh, he made rocking chairs out of uh, out of stone that are perfectly balanced. Yeah, not cozy at all. Not cozy at all, but not easy to do. No, sure, but just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Look, I made a pillow out of rock. <laughs> Enjoy. No, thank you. Yeah, it does look like something that uh, you would um, furnish Fred Flintstone's living room with. (laughs) For sure. So the Coral Castle. It's right outside of Miami, Florida, or as I like to say, Miami. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. 
and use code oddities at checkout and you will save. Thanks Aura Frames for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. There's a reason you didn't hear this at the start of the podcast. This is That Thing in the Middle. Thing in the Middle today, incredible job perks that you don't have. Number five, Adobe shuts down their offices for two months every year, forcing their employees to go on vacation. Also, basketball courts. Number four, BarkBox. Sure, they've got seating cubbies and an unlimited vacation policy, but... The number one perk, employees can bring their dogs to the office and are provided pet insurance as part of the company plan. Number three, at Google, it's company policy that no matter where the employee is at the Googleplex, they can never be more than a certain distance away from food. There's food everywhere, you guys. Number two, LinkedIn. LinkedIn devotes an entire day for employees to explore their interests and creativity. It's called In Days. They happen once a month on Fridays, and you're just encouraged to play. And number one, Zillow. One of the biggest ways the company looks out for their staff is through parenting perks. For example, they'll ship breast milk overnight to mothers who work for them if they're traveling. That's pretty rad. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Thanks, Kat and Jethro. That was fun. Kat and Jethro from the past are great. <laughs> now we're going to talk about a woman who works. See, it's all about labor. You've picked up on the theme by now. But her work changed the world. So let's talk about Sarah Breedlove. Sarah Breedlove was born in December of 1867. She was known as Madam C.J. Walker. 
you might recognize the name, but you might be like, why do I recognize yeah, the exactly. name? Yeah, exactly. It sounds really familiar. She was an African-American entrepreneur. She was a philanthropist and a political and social activist. She was born in Louisiana to Owen and Minerva Breedlove. She was one of six children. Her parents and her older siblings were enslaved on the Madison Parish Plantation, but Sarah was the first child in her family born into freedom after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. She was, though, orphaned at the age of seven. Her mother died of cholera in 1872, and her father died a year later. At the age of 10, she became a domestic worker in Mississippi, and she would later say that during her childhood, she had only three months of formal education, which she learned during Sunday school literacy lessons at the church that she attended. So she lives with her older sister, Lavinia, and her brother-in-law, Jesse Powell. And the word is that Jesse Powell was kind of a dick and was kind of abusive. And uh, Sarah ended up getting married at the age of 14 in 1882. And uh, some say that that was mostly an effort just to get away from her sister's husband. Some things don't change much, you know? Yeah, there are always dicks. It's, uh, It's a pervasive problem. So they had a daughter. Oh, and by the way, if you are a dick, stop. Yeah, consider stopping. So they had a daughter, Alalia Walker, in 1885. And then two years later, Sarah's husband, Moses, dies. So at this point, she's 20. She's got a two-year-old daughter. She's a widow at 20. Yep. So she moves to St. Louis, where uh, three of her brothers lived. And she was working as a laundress. Uh, She earned about a dollar a day, but she had this idea and she was very determined that she was going to make enough money to provide her daughter with a formal education and give her kid, you know, the life that that she didn't have. Um, During this time, she's singing at the St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church, which for the longest time I thought was pronounced Episcopal. <laughs> and so she's seeing. That sounds like some kind of a foreign condiment. <laughs> oh, I thought it sounded like a medical procedure. Well, that. that ah, too... gotta go in for my episcopal. <laughs> hey, hey. I'm, I'm gonna try... put some episcopal. <laughs> yeah. On this hey, non. Hey, hey, don't eat that pancake without putting a little episcopal on it. <laughs> mm. Mm. So she, she's going to this church and she's seeing these fine ladies with their nice hats and she's got this dream for her daughter and she's just really focused on making something of herself. She's also going through this really rough time with her skin and her hair. It was very common among black women at that time um, to have scalp issues. She experienced severe dandruff and other scalp ailments, including baldness to a certain point because of skin disorders Mm. and the application of uh, products that they offered that included things like lye. You know, you, you can't put lye on your scalp all the time. It's not good for it. You put put the lye in the coconut. Right. That's different. Right. Um, Don't put the lye on your coconut. Never mind. Ain't there nothing I can take. No. The scalp aches. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Keep in mind at this time that uh, most Americans or at least many Americans didn't have indoor plumbing and central heating and electricity. There's lots of uh, issues with illness, poor diet, you know, and then when you're making a dollar a day, it's hard to 
to spend that extra dollars on making sure that your scalp is nice. It's just, you know, it, right. it was a rough time. She did, ho- however, have uh, brothers who were barbers. So she had some understanding of hair care. And then she got a job as a commission agent selling products for Annie Malone. Annie Malone was an African-American hair care entrepreneur and the owner of the Poro Company. So this was right around the time of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, which was also known as the World's Fair at St. Louis. It was in 1904. Sure, meet me in St. Louis. This thing was huge. I had no idea. I mean, I knew that these... These expositions and the World Fair kind of things were were huge, but I didn't realize they were fifteen million dollars of capital huge. Yeah, yeah it, it, in nineteen oh four. Sure, people came from all over for the World's Fairs in in those days, especially. Now I want to watch Meet Me in St. Louis. We can clang 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 goes the trolley. Well, it's our it's our date day, so Ooh, okay, yeah, we can right. we can watch a, oh, a movie that. and and have okay. some delicious. Celebratory date day foods. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So it was huge. It was a big event. But overall, sales there were kind of a bummer because the African-American community was largely overlooked and ignored. And uh, Sarah was kind of bummed by this because this is how she's making her money now. Mm -hmm. And she's also feeling like, hey, if $15 million goes into funding this stupid fair, why can't we be represented as well. So she remarried in 1894. Uh, She ended up leaving that guy around 1903. Uh, So at this point, she's widowed and divorced. She's 37 when she moves to Denver with her daughter. And she continued to sell products for Malone. But that ended up becoming kind of an issue because at this point, she's starting to create her own line of goods. Okay. And Malone is accusing her of stealing her formula, but it was basically like a petroleum jelly and sulfur kind of thing, which had been around for generations. It wasn't a new concept. It was like if you said, hey, you stole my peanut butter and jelly idea. It, you can't. It's no, I just made my own sandwich. Yeah, right. And it's delicious. So it's it's a gray area. In January of 1906, Sarah marries Charles Joseph Walker. He was a newspaper advertising salesman that she'd known in Missouri. And this is when she becomes Madam C.J. Walker. She starts marketing herself as an independent hairdresser and retailer of cosmetic creams. The madam was adopted from women pioneers of the French beauty industry. So she kind of created a character for herself um, because she was really savvy and she understood marketing and yeah. Very forward thinking. So uh, her husband was her business partner, and they talked a lot about advertising and promotion, um, and she started selling her products door to door. And as part of selling these products, she also started teaching women about how to groom and style their hair. It wasn't just here, buy this pomade. It was here, let me show you how to make this work for you. And by 1906, uh, she's actually doing pretty well, and she's put her daughter in charge of the mail order operation while she and her husband traveled throughout the southern and eastern United States to expand the business. And she decides to set up shop in Indianapolis in 1910. She established the headquarters for the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. Um, She would eventually build a factory, a hair salon, a beauty school. She would train sales agents. She added a laboratory to help with research. 
and hired a ton of employees. Many of those key management and staff positions were women. She also trained other women to become beauty culturalists using the Walker system, which um, was like the products that you would use and how to how to do it, how to do it. Right. So between 1911 and 1919, during the height of her career, Walker and her company, Walker and her company employed thousands of women as sales agents for its products. And by 1917, the company claimed to have trained nearly 20,000 women using the Walker system. Holy shit. Like I said, she understood the power of advertising and brand awareness. She advertised heavily, primarily in African-American newspapers and magazines. Mm -hmm. And she added um, training and sales and grooming, showing other women how to budget, build their own businesses. She encouraged them to become financially independent. She started this whole side project, not just about hair, but how to be your, your own person who can take care of herself and budget your own dollars. See, that is incredibly generous on her part, but also incredibly savvy. The idea that I'm just going to give you this information for free builds brand loyalty. For sure. It's also dangerous. I mean, a lot of people saw women, especially at that time, um, having their own understanding of money and business is dangerous and destructive. In uh, Let alone an African-American. Let alone an African-American woman. Absolutely. And in 1917, uh, she was inspired by the model of the National Association of Colored Women. She began organizing her sales agents into state and local clubs. So it's kind of like, um, think of, you know, Avon or Mary Kay. I was going to say, it sounds a lot like like Mary Kay stole her idea. Right. The uh, result was the establishment of the National Beauty Culturists and Benevolent Association of Madame C.J. Walker Agents. Holy which is, crap. She could have worked on shortening that up. Sure. Uh, but they had their first annual conference in Philadelphia in the summer of 1917, and they had over 200 attendees. Uh, during this conference, she gave prizes to the women who sold the most products and brought in the most agents, which is like any other direct sales company sure. that you know of. Right, you know, your right. friends sell something and they're always trying to get you to sell it, too. You, you know, this this model. And she was one of the forerunners of like, this is this is what we're going to do. So she um, also rewarded those who made the largest contributions to charities in their communities. Wow. This conference is believed to have been among the first national gatherings of women entrepreneurs to discuss business and commerce in the States. In 1917. In 1917. Um, giving was incredibly important to her, and she encouraged it in the women that she was training. She helped to raise funds to establish a branch of the YMCA in Indianapolis's black community, pledging $1,000. She also contributed scholarship funds to the Tuskegee Institute, uh, various churches, schools, uh, the Palmer Memorial Institute in North Carolina. She was also a patron of the arts. In 1918, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs honored her for making the largest individual contribution to help preserve Frederick Douglass's Anacostia House. Before her death, she pledged $50,000 to the NAACP's anti-lynching fund. That At that time, that was the largest gift wow. from an individual that the NAACP had ever received. 50 grand. 50 grand in 1919. That's crazy money. That is crazy money back then. So when she did die, 
It's 1919, and she bequeathed nearly $100,000 to orphanages, institutions, and individuals. And her will directed two-thirds of the future net profits of her estate to charity. So she wanted to know that even after she was gone, everything that she had helped to build was going to keep giving. So she didn't really have the company that long. She died in 1919. She built that company quickly. The uh, the headquarters for the Madam C.J. Walker Company was built in Indianapolis in 1910. So, yeah, no, um, it, 1906 was when she yep. she left idea. to do the, yep. the you know so yeah no it wasn't long at all but it exploded it was so she was so savvy and so focused and so committed to not just the products but these people and the communities and i think people really latched on to that idea that it wasn't just you're buying soap you're you're becoming better At the time of her death, the average American's annual salary was $750. A year? A year. Wow, wow, wow. And when she died, she was considered to be the wealthiest African-American woman in America. Her estate was worth an estimated $600,000 upon her death, which in today's money... I worked it out, mm-hmm. is about $8,896,156. Not bad. Although she was eulogized as the first female self-made millionaire in America. According to the New York Times, she said in 1917, she was not yet a millionaire, but she hoped to be at some time. The legacy actually continues. She's got a couple of properties listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Villa Luaro is a mansion that she built in Irvington, New York, uh, in the mid-1910s. And it is mind-blowingly gorgeous. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, as well as the Madam Walker Theater Center in Indianapolis, which was originally the... um, the manufacturing company where she started in Indianapolis with the what eventually had the factory and the hair salon and the beauty school and all that. So it's it's incredible how much uh, she was able to amass in such a short period of time. You know, you, you, you hear so many stories about people that come from humble beginnings yeah. and then they achieve a high level of success and turn into fucking assholes. <laughs> Yeah. You know, money ruins people in many cases. Mm-hmm. How refreshing it is when you hear a story like this of somebody who comes from humble beginnings like that, mm-hmm. achieves huge success and then gives most of it away. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And um, like I was talking about earlier, it's it's one of those stories that. I recognized the name, but I didn't know the story. And so when I started reading this, I just kept going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I kept reminding myself of the years that I was talking about. Like, so I'm reading this and I was like, oh, wow, she built this manufacturing thing. Oh, in a laboratory. And I'm like, okay, hold the phone. Wow. It's 1910. And she's an African-American woman. Right. And her, she and her husband, CJ, (laughs) Charles, Charles. She and Charles Walker mm-hmm. ended up divorcing in 1912. So most of this, she she did she did on her own on her own. Yeah, um, you know, he was there during the the beginning stages and helping to get it set up, and they they were business partners. Uh, but she they got divorced in 1912. She kept that name and uh, did 
kept it pretty okay. C.J. Walker sounds like the name of a really bad 1980s radio morning show host. <laughs> hey, it's C.J. Walker, everybody. Like it's, that. It's true. Yeah, I yeah. worked with a bunch of C.J. Walkers in my career. I know. So that's that's a, that's the magical story of Madam C.J. Walker. Very, very interesting. I had no idea. And again, I had recognized the name hey. and not because, it, you know, I had worked with somebody with a name like that right. in, in radio. <laughs> but it just it's one of those names that you go, yeah, I, I know that name, but I don't know where that came from it's like when you see an actor in you in the movies and you go oh i know that guy who is that guy he's that guy that was he's in that thing that guy that was in that thing yeah but uh, what an amazing story thanks for bringing that to life all right at the beginning of the episode we we mentioned uh, yeah the theme is labor for labor day but this is a different kind of labor labor as in labor giving birth labor you get it. But a horrible birth. Oh, yeah. No, it's not a good one. No. One afternoon in the late summer of 2002, a woman named Zara Abutalib, a 72-year-old woman living in a village, which was just outside of Casablanca, Morocco, which uh-huh. I want to go there, too. Yes, please. I had the fried cauliflower at the Morocco stand in Epcot, and I'm sure that's exactly what it's like to be a Morocco. Zara began suffering excruciating abdominal pains oh no is something living inside of her (laughs) god damn it (laughs) um it just kind of came on suddenly and she thought well you know what i'm gonna just drink some tea and go to bed Mm -hmm. you know and sleep it off whatever this is uh the next morning she woke up the pain had not not subsided in fact it had gotten worse much worse oh no UnbelievableFacts.com tells us her son became alarmed and he, uh, I guess a hospital wasn't uh, readily available. She couldn't go right to a hospital because she was kind of out in the country a bit. Okay. As my dad would say, the willy wax. The willy wags. No, it's the willy wax. Oh, that's what he says? Yeah. Okay. That's what he said. He's dead now, but thanks for bringing it up. Do you need a hug? (laughs) Always. (laughs) So he took her to a professor. Tabi Owazani, he was a uh, doctor, a professor of medicine. He suspected ovarian tumors or a ovarian tumor because of uh, her belly, it was a protruding belly. Okay. So he called ahead to a hospital, the nearest one, and arranged for an ultrasound scan. And the results shocked those that saw them. Not a tumor then? Nope. The scan showed an unidentifiable large mass. So, but he ruled out ovarian, an ovarian tumor, and he referred her to a specialist, a radiographer, and they went ahead and did an MRI scan on Zara. The results? There's something living inside of her. No, no, no. It's not that bad. Oh. Zara was carrying a stone fetus. Oh. The calcified remains of an unborn baby. Now, okay, I have questions. Go. So, why would the symptoms of that come on so quickly and so strongly like wouldn't that be like a process one would think so but she had actually been carrying this since 1955 whoa yep she became pregnant that year after suffering labor pains for about 48 hours she was rushed rushed to a a local hospital doctors prepared her for 
Wait, she went to a hospital? She didn't just have some tea and then go talk to a teacher? No, in 1955, apparently she lived closer to a hospital. So they rushed her to the hospital. Doctors prepared her for a cesarean section. Uh, But while she was waiting, she saw another woman who had gone in for a cesarean section uh, die on a recovery table next to her. Uh And so she fled the hospital thinking that if she stayed, she would meet uh, the same fate. And she kept feeling excruciating labor pains, but suffered no miscarriage. But the pain stopped after a few days. And she believed in a local Moroccan myth, which was called the Sleeping Child. The Sleeping Child is a Moroccan folktale, which says that black and white magic can make a fetus dormant. And it might wake up and be born after uh, the normal gestation. What would be the purpose of that? I mean, is it like getting a vacation hold on your FedEx delivery? Because (laughs) that makes sense. It's exactly like that. Even Article 154 of the uh, current family code in the Moroccan law states that a child born one year after the separation is considered to be fathered by the ex-husband. Oh, I see. Uh huh. So now this all is making sense. Now it's political. Got it. Zara believed in the Moroccan myth very strongly. Furthermore, once the labor pains stopped, she just uh, started living her life as usual. Wait, I'm sorry. Your husband died two years ago. How are you pregnant? Oh, uh, haven't you heard of the magic? Uh, magic made his baby just live inside me until it was ready to be born. That's I have not been sleeping around uh, with the townsfolk. I, in fact, it is my dead husband's baby. Hoorah. Ta-da. <laughs> right? Magic baby. Now, she never had, she never actually did give birth to a child. Um, she adopted three children. Oh, that's nice. Um, and went on with her life for about 46 years until this happened. It was concluded that she had suffered from the ectopic pregnancy. That's where the egg had implanted itself in the fallopian tube. And it burst the, the, through the tube during the development. And it came to life in the abdominal cavity. The fetus had attached itself through the placenta to the vital organs around Zara's stomach. So they were looking at this and they're thinking, yeah, man, she's 72. Um, Is this going to be safe? Right. It's kind of like, all right, well, our dog's teeth are really gross, but uh, he's 12. (laughs) But they decided to go ahead. The surgeon operated. It was discovered that the fetus was entirely calcified. It was a hard, solid lump, basically a stone baby with features of an unborn baby up to that point of the gestation period. Which means that technically it's not a baby. An unborn baby. The word baby means post-birth. NBC calls it a stone baby. (laughs) And I like the way that sounds. Okay. Anyway... (laughs) It was fused to Zara's abdominal wall and vital organs. <laughs> after, after four hours, they successfully removed the calcified fetus from her, and it weighed seven pounds. Whoa. Why didn't this bother her before then? I don't know. I think that part of it was the local culture and her belief in this uh, myth of the sleeping child, that it was just in there resting. But she carried it for 46 years. Whoa. I mean, I suppose like anything else, you get kind of used to pain. So if it was gradually increasing or gradually becoming more uncomfortable, then you'd 
kind of just get over it, especially if you only have tea to treat your wounds. In a hearty nap. The real term for stone baby is lithopedians. And they start, according to an NBC interview, Dr. Uh, Natalie Berger, who is an endocrinologist and fertility expert at Texas Fertility Center. She said that it starts off as an ectopic pregnancy, a condition where the fertilized egg gets stuck on its way to the womb. Right. And it implants itself outside the uterus. Usually, she says... That type of pregnancy will will mean a fallopian tubal pregnancy, but in small percentages of cases, the pregnancy can actually occur in the abdominal cavity in places like the bowel. <gasps> that's Literally, a poop fetus. That's a shitty way to start one's life. <sighs> she said that these are not that uncommon, but it's very rare that they can uh, develop to this point. In many cases, what happens is it uh, the tissue just breaks down. Right. And it's absorbed back into the mother. Right, because if it's outside of the the uterus, then it's not in a place that's that's meant to house that kind of material. So right. your body would kind of just shoop, 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 take care of it. In certain cases, the implanted fetus gets to an advanced stage before it dies. Like in Zara's case, it's too large to be absorbed by the body. The remains surrounding amniotic sac slowly calcify, turning to stone. It's actually a way that the woman's body is protecting itself against uh, infection and, and invasion. Right. That makes sense. It doesn't recognize what the hardened mass is other than it's a foreign object. And so it uh, builds calcification around it to protect the mother. It's just like when an oyster gets that uh, yeah. dirt in it, when it right. gets a little bit of sand in there, it irritates it. It's, sure. it's like, ow, I don't care for this sand. Thank you very much. So it covers the sand in, in what is essentially the lining of its shell and makes it softer and more, more tolerable for it. That's it, how pearls are made. Right. It creates a beautiful pearl. I have yet to see any beautiful stone baby jewelry yet, but perhaps that's on the way. Stone babies are extremely rare. Fetus. Or stone fetus, if you prefer. Stone baby sounds so much more dramatic. It does. It sounds like a great band name. It, it sounds like the next album to Lion to the Dying. New from Lion to the Dying. Stone baby. Stone baby. Available now. We're all fine. Do it. Say the thing that you want to say. Say the thing that's most natural to you. Say records and tapes. Seven ninety nine for album. Eight ninety nine for eight track tape or cassette. By the way, if anyone here works for Columbia House. Sorry. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think we both want to apologize for that. I was a child. I, I shouldn't have been signing up for yeah, things. No, that was a loophole I got out of, too. The average, quote, stone pregnancy, according to uh, a medical journal's article, is 22 years. What? Some women, such as Xiong Yijiang from China, carried their calcified fetuses for more than 50 years. Whoa. Now, you asked how she could do that and not go, hey, there's something in me that's hard. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do wonder that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there would be symptoms of early pregnancy in some cases, and then they would just go away. The woman would just think of it as a lost pregnancy and wouldn't think any more of it, especially in areas that were not developed yet. Sure. And if it were uh, very early in the stages of growth, then it wouldn't be that noticeable. Right. It's not 
like in this case where it's seven pounds, right, right. that's sturdy. That's a, that's a sturdy stone nugget inside of you. That is the uh, pretty close to, I would think, the average weight of a baby that has been birthed and come to full term and birthed. I wouldn't know. I was enormous. How big were you? I was almost 10 pounds. Holy shit. <laughs> You're one of them stone babies. <laughs> My Aunt Ida weighed 14 pounds. Ouch. And she's a tiny little woman. So she just didn't grow much after that? I don't know. So Hyung Yijong told reporters that uh, she didn't have the money to have her fetus removed. Oh, so she knew. Yeah, she knew doctors actually told her the baby had died inside of her in 1948, but she didn't have the money to have it removed. So she did nothing and ignored it, which is not smart, by the way. I mean, did she at least drink some tea? There have been cases of lithopedians, according to Berger, which have weighed up to nine pounds. Wow. A full-grown fetus, essentially, have been known to cause intestinal obstruction, pelvic abscesses, problems with delivery and future pregnancies. I would of think course. that. Yeah. Hey, you're in the way. Right. According to the Washington Post, there was a case in Chile which may have never been discovered if for um, an unrelated injury. Estela Melendez, 91 years old, a resident of La Boca. She went to the hospital. She fell and hurt herself. That means the mouth. The doctor said, this is, this is a quote from her. The doctor said, I had a tumor and that I needed to be operated on. But a second x-ray confirmed not a tumor, but a stone fetus. It seems similar. Now, in her case, it was a, uh, a small bump, which was caused by a stone baby over a half a century old. And while it caused occasional pain, hadn't she had that uh, fall, she never would have discovered it. She just lived with it. Some patients with, uh, with this condition have been known to carry healthy pregnancies at the same time. Wow. Now, I'm guessing these are much, much smaller stone fetuses. In Melendez's case, this stone fetus was 4.4 pounds. It formed inside her uterus instead of in the abdomen, which is unusual. Yeah, because the uterus is made to make babies. Yep. And that prevented her from having living children. Oh, wow. Yeah, because your uterus is only, yeah, it was already doing its thing. It's full of rocks. Yeah, it was it was busy. Because of her age, because she was 91, uh, they opted not to risk Sure. The operation. So sure. she just lived the rest of her life out with this stone baby. In like, her. I want to understand the circumstances that surround carrying a baby to term and then just not giving birth and being like, OK. There was a woman in India, 52 years old, went to the doctor after years of suffering abdominal pain. She had visited many doctors, and they just gave her painkillers and pills mm. for the acidity. She spent three years vomiting continuously. Oh, jeez. Finally, a, a team of uh, two doctors, I guess two could be a team, right? They decided to operate immediately, and they removed a fully grown, quote, stone baby. Wow. It was a two-hour operation. He said it was, uh, the doctor said it was a shock for everyone present at the operating theater. After opening the abdomen, there was a stone fetus that had pretty much grown to full size. Mm. Now, if you're not expecting that that's what you're going to find when you bust that open and yeah. discover that uh, a fetus made of stone. It's like a really horrific kinder surprise egg. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking, which 
concerns me a little bit. That we both immediately go. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not a very litigious person, you know, but I would be seeking action against those initial doctors that were like, here's some heartburn medicine for your continuous vomiting and your stoned baby. There have been reported cases of extremely elderly people like in their 90s delivering 60-year-old babies that were seven, eight, nine pounds. That they had carried them for 60-plus years. Whoa. And then actually birthed them. Like through their canal. Well, it says birthed. So, so that would lead you to believe it would lead you to believe it was, you know, maybe they induced I mean, I guess it. you give birth when you have a C-section, too. It's just That's, not the same. I guess we would use that terminology kind of loosely in right. that case. But I don't know if they induced labor or just, I imagine, probably a cesarean. You keep it or... I do not know what they... What, I mean, of course, it's, a, it's an, an individual, individual decision. Yeah, That's, exactly. Yeah. I'm just thinking, what would I do? What would you do? It's one of my favorite shows. John Keonis just busted into our bedroom. What would you do, Katrina Walls, if you birthed a stone fetus that was nine pounds? Well, first of all, I would be um, terrified because um, it would be a virgin birth and I... Liar! (laughs) Liar! I'm just saying it would be a miracle. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Well, it certainly has caused public sensations throughout history. In 1582, the autopsy findings of Madame Chartres, complete with illustrations, by the way, depicting the woman and her stone child. Nice. Became an instant medical bestseller, and the calcified fetus was quickly sold to a wealthy French merchant. Sure. He was kind of a P.T. Barnum type. He put it on display at his Museum of Curiosities and Oddities in Paris. The fossilized fetus reportedly was passed around, exchanged hands many times. Finally, ending up in the King of Denmark's Royal Museum in 1653. 200 years later, the museum was dissolved and the stone fetus was transferred to the Danish Museum of Natural History. Several years after that, that stone fetus was lost, disappeared. Well, that was fascinating. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
And now, that thing in the middle. Today, a list of unusual things that were found in sewers around the world. Number five. In Scotland, they found a fax machine in the sewer. That's where it belongs. How do you flush a, a fax machine? Number four, the water treatment facility in Japan pulled out approximately 36,000 pounds worth of gold from its sludge. The gold particles are said to have come from precision instruments used by people in the industry. That's fascinating. Number three, dinosaur fossils. In Alberta, Canada, construction crew working on new housing developments discovered dinosaur fossils. Paleontologists believed they were from a duck-billed dinosaur called Hypocrosaurus. More like Hypogrosaurus, am I right? Am I right? Yeah. Number two. In London, workers found a hand grenade in a sewer. You gotta be careful when you're handling those things. Yeah, well, you should be careful when you're handling anything from a sewer. And number one, you know, you've heard the urban legend of people flushing baby alligators down the toilet and then them living in the sewers and becoming huge. Well, in Texas, it's a reality. In 2006, workers found a huge 600-pound alligator. He was found exploring a three-foot-wide drain in Texas. So they they pulled him out and released him. Yeah. I can't imagine that that's a nice life for an alligator. Though I bet there are lots of rats to eat. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Big high five to sewer workers because that's not something I think I would be very good at. Moving right along, we are now going into the world of extreme sporting, which can be labor. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a job. People put forth a lot of labor to be good in their particular chosen field of competition. Maybe it's a labor of love. And in this one, and this is a labor of starched and pressed love. I have to lower the shades. I'm sorry. I'm being blinded. Blinded by the light? Yeah. Revved up like a deuce deuce. in another roamer in the night. It's twice that Uh, song's come up. Weird. And by the way, who is Go-Kart Mozart and why is he checking out a weather chart? Besides the fact he's, you know, I don't know seeing if he's safe outside. Any of the words to that song other than the part about douches. It's deuce, like deuce coupe. According to the Extreme Ironing Bureau, extreme ironing is the latest danger sport that combines the thrills of an extreme outdoor activity with the satisfaction of a well-pressed shirt. <laughs> Extreme ironing. I am in. So I got most of my information from Wikipedia and from an article in the New York Times. Extreme ironing came into existence around 1980 near Settle in the Yorkshire Dales National Park in England. Inspired by his eccentric brother-in-law, John Slater, who ironed his clothes even when camping in a tent, (laughs) Tony Heim illustrated the futility of unnecessary ironing by doing it in bizarre situations such as mountain lookouts, crowded (laughs) airport departure lounges, on top of telephone kiosks, and charity clothing bins. Until 1990, Tony often carried ironing board plus iron in his car boot, 
<laughs> on the lookout for opportunities to cause bystanders to look at him and think, what's going on there? Yeah. That man is ironing. There are those who say that Phil Shaw is actually the creator of extreme ironing. And I think the idea that there is a debate about who started extreme ironing is the most amazing part of the story. Oh, please, God, tell me they had an iron off. Iron off. Iron off. So Phil Shaw came home from what he recalls as a hard day in a knitwear factory, and he had a number of chores to do, including ironing his shirts. Preferring the idea, though, of an evening out rock climbing, he decided to combine the two activities into a new extreme sport. In June 1999, Shaw, who uses the nickname Steam, embarked on an international tour to promote the activity. The stops included the U.S., Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. An encounter with German tourists in New Zealand led to the formation of a group called the Extreme Ironing International (laughs) and the German Extreme Ironing Section, or GEIS. No iron is right for every situation. According to Mr. Shaw, a one iron is the heaviest, and that's excellent for those stubborn creases and strenuous situations involving high winds, but too heavy and awkward for long distance ironing. Uh Sometimes the ironists, and I know this is going to be a question, sometimes they lug electrical generators, but other times they heat their irons on portable gas stoves. A German ironist... Dr. Iron Q has treated an iron with a chemical that heats up when water is applied. So that's how he irons. But is it good for the clothing? Um, That particular chemical? Not sure. Mm. Not sure. But I think that um, that would be factored into the scoring. Certainly. The actual ironing in extreme ironing does count. Ironists, Mr. Shaw wrote in his book, added to Goodreads, by the way, are sometimes so absorbed in getting themselves into some sort of awkward or dangerous situation with their ironing board that they forget the main reason they're there in the first place, to rid their clothing of creases and wrinkles. The quality of pressing counts for 60 out of 120 points. Style counts for 40 points and speed 20. The first Extreme Ironing World Championship was held in Germany in 2002 and was judged by a white glove panel of German homemakers. Wow. 80 teams from 10 countries competed on an obstacle course arrayed in the shape of an iron, pressing boxer shorts and blouses while scaling a climbing wall, hanging from a moss-covered tree branch, and squeezing under the hood of a car. Why isn't ESPN covering this? That is my question. I would spend the weekend watching this. The sport gained international attention after a documentary entitled Extreme Ironing, Pressing for Victory, Uh was produced for Britain's Channel 4. The program followed the British team's effort and eventually bronze and gold placings in the first extreme ironing world championships in Germany. There was also a side story that looked into the rivalry between the Extreme Ironing Bureau and a breakaway group called the Urban Housework, who were trying to establish their own extreme sport. <laughs> who were trying to, <laughs> who were trying to establish their own extreme sport based around vacuum cleaning. Oh, the film aired later on the National Geographic Channel. <clears throat> now, was the vacuuming extreme as well? Yes. Wow. It must be because if you're vacuuming outdoors. You're never done. I actually wrote in when I was a, a youngin, when I was a small person, mm-hmm. probably like this mm-hmm. tall, mm-hmm. Um, and to uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, because I wanted to know if you 
set up a vacuum cleaner outside, but just put the hose in the air, Mm -hmm. how long it would take for the vacuum bag to fill. Now, as a small person, this tall is That's a great question. Thank you. Did did Bill Nye snub you? Yes, I was snubbed. I was ignored. And I think it was because looking back, obviously, there are too many variables. I married a person snubbed by Bill Nye. Yeah. Well, I mean, I forgive him. I see now that that's an impossible question to answer with any certainty. Where are you? What's the surrounding area like? Are you in a very dusty place? Are you in a not dusty place? Are you in the Arctic? You're not going to get a lot of dust in the Arctic. Sure, sure. Um, Though maybe you will. I don't know that much about the Arctic. That's next week. Um, plus, what kind of vacuum is it? What size is the vacuum bag? There are too many variables. I sure. should have known better. I was an idiot. How old were you? I don't know. I was like this tall. About se- six or seven? I don't know. About, yeah, I would say, based on how high you're holding your hand, I would say seven. I'm not good at this game. She does that all the time. How old was that kid? Oh, about this old, and she'll hold her hand up. About that, about that old. Anyway, in 2003, John Roberts and Ben Gibbons ironed a Union Jack just above Everest Base Camp. This is believed to be the world altitude record for the sport. (laughs) The reported height was 5,440 meters above sea level. Has anybody ironed while skydiving? Yes. Shut up. What did they iron? It couldn't have been like a sheet. It looks like a tank top. Oh, okay. How are they holding it onto the board? Okay, so two guys are holding it on the board. And the other guy is above it, ironing yeah. it. Okay. I think um, to extreme iron while skydiving, it has to be like a team sport. That would be my understanding. Sure. Well, that makes that Otherwise, makes... there's got to be a lot of preparation involved. You would have to like tack down the, sure. the item. In 2003, a group won a trophy um, by ironing across a gorge at Wolfberg Cracks. They were from South Africa. In 2004, the EIB traveled to the U.S. on the Rowenta tour to recruit additional ironists and ironed at Mount Rushmore, New York City, Boston, and Devil's Tower. <laughs> and in March 2008, a team of 72 divers simultaneously ironing underwater set a new world record for a number of people ironing underwater at once. This reminds me of when I lived in Orlando, they had a thing called, I think it was the, the Doodah Parade. Which was started by a local columnist, and it just featured uh, weird things like uh, the precision folding lawn chair team, and they would just be marching along, and then they'd, in precision, they would open their chairs and sit down and get up and spin around it, and that would be followed by a group just pushing lawnmowers. You know, it was just crazy fun Does stuff. Does it still happen? I don't know. Can we go to this? If it still happens. Make it, do the, do the do machine. The, do the Google the, machine? Yeah. For the information times, I want to go to that so badly. Um, While you're looking that up, let me tell you about other things. Like, on June 16th, 2018, a freediver, Roland Pickley, uh, ironed a t-shirt at the depth of 138 feet in the world's deepest pool in Italy. I understand that an iron can be treated in such a way so that when it's wet, it creates the the heat and works out the wrinkles and such but i don't believe that getting an item of clothing out of a pool and then it re-drying without having to be re-ironed i think that there's some there's a a wet item of clothing issue that i struggle with when considering extreme ironing 
All right, I'm not seeing anything about Orlando. Maybe some of our Orlando listeners can clue us in if that's something that still goes on there. But it started in Pasadena and then spread to Columbus, Ohio. There's one there. There's one in Ocean City. Uh, I was just saying I wanted to go to Ohio. Kalamazoo has a doodah parade in Michigan. Michigan! I'm so excited. So there you go. I'm very happy. Okay, so now we um, have... Events that we have to go to, world championships, and parades. A parade I want to go to. There are very few of those. There really are. We hate parades. We do. We really, especially the ones they have in Maine, because it's like you're standing there and, oh, a fire truck. I've never seen one of those. Maybe that was entertaining back in the 20s, you know, or the 30s when it was relatively novel. Right. Oh, there's a flatbed truck decorated with crepe paper and a bunch of flabby old people sitting in lawn chairs. I don't really care for parades. Right. Plus, they've stopped throwing candy because it's a hazard. Right. What What, is the point of a parade if you're not getting candy hucked at you? I ask you. There is no logical answer to that question. Right. Plus, there's a there's a backstory to why I hate parades. Maybe we'll discuss it sometime. All right. A little dark for right now. Okay. Anyway, that's what I've got. Extreme ironing. I love it. I love it so much. Seems like a great way to blow off steam. I just came up with that off the cuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Woo. Seems like a real pressing issue. No, I should have stopped with the cuff. Yep. I probably never should have started. I love that. And, and, and there, there, I'm sure there's just so many bizarre sports and competitions like this. Would that be considered a sport? They they claim that it is. Okay. And there was a championship, so sure. it must be. Well, competitive eating is a sport. It's, I guess. Yeah. Race car driving. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> so not. Who was it that said that if you can drink a beer while you're doing it, it's an activity. It's not a sport. <laughs> don't know but it's so accurate i don't know who said that i can't take credit for it i wish i could i wish i could credit them though whoever it was good luck finding anything i can't do while drinking a beer that's true you are invincible thank you with a little pilsner in you Thanks, y'all, for joining us for this very special Labor Day recap episode. We hope you have a great Labor Day weekend, uh, wherever you may be. Kat and I are celebrating by sitting on the balcony, uh, singing along with the sound of the propane truck. I was trying to go to sleep last night and it was playing through my brain. We appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com 
Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.